The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I am Bill Donahue. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night. It's the 10th day of July, in case you've been asleep all day, 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, as always, is with us across the way. And I am happy to welcome you back to uh, one of our favorite segments, Baseball at the Movies. We revisit that favorite segment of so many of you, and we will speak to the screenwriter and director of the classic baseball love story, Bull Durham. Ron Shelton will join us. He's got a new book out about Bull Durham titled The Church of Baseball. In the second half, we will welcome in one of the newest Hall of Famers, Tony Oliva. We'll check out uh, how, how his speech is coming. Uh, right after uh, Ron, so sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy this uh, great edition of Sports Talk New York on GBB. As always, we strive to bring you a great show with great people, some good sports talk up ahead. As always, social media is out there. I invite you to follow us on our Facebook page, cleverly titled WGBB Sports Talk New York. There you'll find show information, sports information, and just so much more. You can give us a look and then click and give us a like. Uh, you can also follow us on LinkedIn. We're on that value-added business tool called LinkedIn. And we are on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because they're all out on the website. You can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest, a film director and screenwriter, and a former minor league baseball infielder, He's known for uh, the many films he's made about sports, which include White Men Can Jump, one of my favorites, Cobb. Uh, he also directed a documentary called Jordan Rides the Bus. It's about Michael Jordan's year in the minor leagues. But his 1988 film, Bull Durham, it's based partly on his own experiences. It earned him an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Screenplay. And as I said, he played minor league ball in Baltimore's system. He played with the Bluefield Orioles, the Stockton Ports, the Florida Instruction League Orioles, the Dallas-Fort Worth Spurs, and the great Rochester Red Wings from 67 through 71. This gentleman has a new book out uh, about Bull Durham, as I said, called The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight, Ron Shelton. Ron, good evening. Hey, I'm just happy to be here. I hope I can help the ball club. Uh, yeah, I hear you, Ron. Yeah, I hope you can, too. Now, uh, one thing I noticed that Cobb has in common with Bull Durham is the great Robert Wall. And he's been on the show a few times. You like to, to use Robert. I love to use Robert. And uh, there's a story in the book that... Um, that when he came into audition, it was the worst audition in the history of movies. He was all over the place. He was he was just making noise. He couldn't. And and the, and the casting director said, "I'm so sorry. I invited him into audition." And I said, "Hire him. I love him." 
<laughs> yeah. Said, well, that was terrible. I said, I know it's terrible, but but you can't teach that energy. And it's clear he knows baseball. And of course, he was great in the movie. And we became friends, and I keep hiring him whenever I can. Yeah, we enjoy having Robert on the show on occasion, definitely. Now, is Bull Durham a baseball movie with a love story in it, or a love story that takes place with a baseball backdrop? What, what would you say to that, Ron? I think it's a love story with a baseball backdrop. Okay. I, I think it happens to, along the way, be a lot about baseball without having a big game, without having a home run in the bottom of the ninth or the end of the, you know. Um, and, you know, nobody knows what happens to the Durham Bulls at the end of the movie. Crash Davis and, and Nuke Lelouch aren't even on the team. So, mm-hmm. you know, it captures the spirit of baseball, but it's about a guy and a woman figuring out how to, you know, get get out of their own way and find each other. Definitely. Ron Shelton is with us tonight on the program. I want to talk about your minor league baseball career, Ron. You may not want to, but I'd like to. Now, is there anybody that you played with that we would know? Oh, lots of guys. I was I started out with and went all through the minors, including AAA Rochester with Donnie Baylor and Bobby Gritch and mm-hmm. Johnny Oates. We all started the same year. With and, the Red uh, Wings. Yeah, and Don Baylor, of course, later MVP, the late Sadly, the late Don Baylor and the late Johnny Oates, and uh, Donnie was American League MVP. Uh, Bobby had, you know, incredible numbers for 15 years, and uh, uh, he's from Southern California as I am, and we're still friends. So um, I played against many, many players who were in the big leagues. I mean, from Jim Lomborg to lots of the Met guys, Dodgers. um, I played against, uh, I I mean, so many I can't remember, so... uh, Nice. Okay. (laughs) Now, um, why did you choose the the Durham Bulls, Ron, as your backdrop? Why that? Why that franchise? Yeah. Well, it's it's the low minors, and Mm -hmm. when you're in the low minors, you you can't even dream of the majors. You're just trying to you're trying to to get to the next level, and you don't think about Baltimore. You think about how to get to. Stockton or wherever, and then from Stockton you're trying to get to Double A, and from Double A you're trying to get Triple A. So it, it seems like you're so far away from the big leagues that you'll never ever see a big league, you know, stadium. And um, also Durham at that time, Durham was really a happening city now, but it was it was a mess back then. The, con- <laughs> the, the economy was in the tube, down the tubes. Um, Ballpark was this funky little place. And uh, the town was boarded up, and I thought, this is a perfect symbol of the minor leagues. <laughs> yeah, true. Some of those cities are pretty wrecked. You're right. Now, how long did it take you to write Bull Durham, and were you really attached to it uh, directly right from the start? Yeah, I only made a deal to write it for very low money if I, if I was also attached to direct it. Mm-hmm. I actually went to Durham and drove all around the Carolina League and the South, South Atlantic League, Sally League it's called, hanging out at old ballparks to see if the game had changed since I was in the minors, and it hadn't. It was the same. I mean, guys talking to girls in the stands and, you know, long bus rides and lousy meal money and bad lights. Um, so the minors hadn't changed. The majors had changed. Everybody was a zillionaire and corporate but the minors was the same, so I, I I actually scouted it before I wrote it. No, I wrote it in about three months, maybe four, three months. Yeah. One thing I, I spoke to Robert about was the inclusion in the movie of the great Max Patkin. Um, uh, he's passed away now. How did you get Max in the film? 
we just called him up. I, you know, I love Max from the Miners, and I, yeah. and I wrote about him, and uh, I've written a lot about him. There's a documentary coming out about him that I just did a big interview. I loved him. Uh, I thought he was funny. A lot of guys my generation didn't think he was funny. I thought he still makes me laugh. And <laughs> yeah. I got to know him a little bit in the minors, and he didn't remember me because I hadn't played in 15 years. But when I called him up, you know, we we put him on every scene I could possibly put him in. And uh, I had him come to the press junket in Beverly Hills and gave him the presidential suite in Century City and, <laughs> you know, treated him like a king. Nice, yeah, and deservedly so. The clown prince of baseball, Max Patkin. And uh, look for him in, in Bull Durham next time you, you're watching it on TV. Now, how much of the baseball parts, Ron, were taken from your actual experiences? I mean, we see the pitcher uh, being the mascot, uh, the, the lollygagging. Uh, how about turning the sprinklers on uh, to cause a rain out? And any of those really take place? Well, the, one of the things the book does is it tells things about my life that then later come find a place in the screenplay in the movie. The fact is we did flood the field uh, a couple times because we were trying to get a day off. We weren't trying to be vandals or <laughs> derelicts. But right. in the Texas League, you, you, there's no days off. And you're, I'm playing middle infield and you're beat up. And we just wanted a day off, and we we pulled it off once successfully, once unsuccessfully, and then the other another team in Amarillo with a bunch of major leaguers, Kingman and Chris Spire and uh, Jim Barr, all kinds of guys. They said, "Hey, we heard you flooded the field." We said, "No, we didn't do it. We didn't want to go to jail." They <laughs> said, "Well, we'll meet you here tonight and do it because we don't want to play tomorrow either." So, uh, you know, so then two teams did it. Yeah, that's uh, but great. that was just trying to get a day off, honestly. Um, did we? Yeah, I've hit the mascot, get, get catcher given a pitch to a batter. That happened to me. Um, so I didn't make much up. Let's put it. Chicken bone crosses. Yeah, everything happened to me. That that makes it that much more interesting, Ron. It certainly does. We're speaking to Ron Shelton, the screenwriter and director of Bull Durham tonight on the program. One thing I noticed that maybe might slip by people, Ron, is that you actually see some of the the actors breath uh during the movie it was cold yeah and, and <laughs> if, you, if you're if you're playing baseball in uh, north carolina in july and august you can't see anybody's breath but we shot it in november right in october and november into december and there, and in between takes everybody in the crowd or in the field or the players are just dressed up like they're in alaska and then you have to strip down and play the game there's one scene where the actress playing Millie, her name was Jenny Robertson. Every time she spoke, you know, it, it looked like she was she was in the Arctic. So <laughs> we told her to put a, a cube of ice in her mouth because that somehow <laughs> nullified it. But you couldn't talk with ice in your mouth. So you know, we were figuring it out as we go. But yes, we shot it in the winter. That's why. You see breath. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Now, so many beautiful layers in Bull Durham. We see. We see the comedy, the drama, happy, sad. Uh, both men and women can enjoy this movie, right, Ron? It had a bigger following among women than men. Mm -hmm. To be honest. Okay. And and what what uh, was exactly the draw for the women? Kevin Costner. Yeah, it's a sexy romantic story. Um, you know, the guys are real. They're not superheroes. You know, I mean, everybody's flawed. You know, nobody's perfect. No. People are all have dreams. They're all they're like us, really. And 
the women are strong, both of the women, and they don't just exist in terms of the men. You know, they, they look, you could take any of these women in the movie and put them in their own movie, and that's why uh, I think that's why women respond to the movie. They're strong, what? and uh, and nobody's bossing them around. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We'll take a look at all, uh, all of this is in the book. I mean, I think the book. We're getting tremendous response to the book, and anybody enjoys the movie and likes baseball and wonders about how movies are made, this tells you the real story. Right. I, I just don't want to give away the store, Ron. That's all. No. <laughs> we got to sell books. Now, let's talk about Annie Savoy, played, of course, by Susan Sarandon, a uh, oh, tremendous character in, in the movie. And, of course, you, you took the name Annie. I remember uh, Jim Bouton, I first heard, Baseball Annies, right? Right. And those and are the, I, the, the, and the groupies. The Savoy came. The Savoy, I, there was a, a matchbook cover from a dive bar in L.A. called the Savoy that I was hanging out at, and I saw Savoy Bar, so I gave her the name Annie Savoy. But, um, yeah, she just is kind of came out of my imagination, and there were women I, I knew that liked baseball, but nobody was quite like her. I, and Definitely there was nobody in the minor leagues like her. No. <laughs> I guarantee you that. <laughs> I don't think so. Now, the, the character Crash Davis, of course, played by Kevin Costner, did anybody uh, come to you into mind uh, that inspired this particular character? Yeah, lots and lots of guys I played with, especially when you got to the AAA level, were like Crash. They were in their mid-30s, and they had a cup of coffee in the big leagues, and they were really, really, really good. You know, They just were in the wrong organization at the wrong time, and they never were going to get their shot, and it was all about to pass them by, and it was they had to come to terms with that. And I mean, I, geez, we played with a guy in AAA. He, had, he was a four-year-in-a-row International League all-star third baseman, but he was backup to Brooks Robinson. And, you know, you're not going to get a shot if you're backup to Brooks Robinson. So, mm-hmm. you know, there were guys like that, and I and I had huge respect for them. They were they were angry, but they were professionals, and they always played great. And uh, uh, so he's, he was one of those guys. We're speaking to Ron Shelton on the program tonight. Again, his book about the making of Bull Durham is called The Church of Baseball. And Kevin, of course, Ron, he's not like William Bendix uh, in the Babe Ruth story or Gary Cooper in, the, in uh, Pride of the Yankees who uh, were awkward playing the role. Kevin Costner can hit and throw. Kevin's a really good athlete, really mm-hmm. good athlete. He did all his own catching and hitting. During the movie, he hit two balls out. You can't quite tell that because you can't follow a ball without a, a, a you know, a, with a film camera. But he hit a ball out left-handed. He hit a ball out right-handed. He was throwing guys out. He's a natural athlete. He played high school ball in Southern California, which is a real hotbed just because there's so many high schools here and such a huge population. And he, you know, he's a good golfer and good basketball player too, by the way. But yeah, he did. He he's the real deal. Yeah. Um, Kevin, and there's not a lot of actors who could do what he did. Not hard to see why you picked uh, picked him for the role, Ron, that's for sure. Now, the, the monologue that Crash delivers at Annie's house, how long did it take Kevin to get through that? Uh, it, it's interesting to, to find out. Well, I wrote it in about 40 seconds. I just I didn't even stop to think. I was just trying to put together a list of things that... Um, you know, you couldn't anticipate what the heck's he going to say next, and he was just trying to get the woman's attention, which he got. 
and um, you know it's partly shocking and partly sentimental and partly what's he thinking of and is he out of his mind oh that's interesting and, but we didn't have much time and Kevin loved the speech and uh, I did one I did basically it's one take to be honest um, and it's not even a close up <laughs> no so I just I thought it was perfect I said let's go he wanted to do more and I said no we're going we're moving forward and I'm glad because I don't think any second or third takes would have been as good as the first take. No, he nailed it. Exactly. He nailed it on, on that take. Now, Tim Robbins' character is Nuke Lelouch, the, the pitcher with the great arm and no brain. Is that based on anybody in particular, Ron? Oh, there's lots of nukes out there. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots and lots of Nuke Lelouch. Um I mean, there's so many guys that threw the heck out of the ball, and they just couldn't put it together in a game. Maybe they were great in the bullpen, you know. And uh, and you wonder, you see, geez, I never saw a guy that threw this well, but they couldn't sustain it, or they'd have a great game and a bad game, or they'd walk 14 guys and strike out 18. And uh, so the best arms I ever saw never made it to the major leagues, to be honest. And so everybody who's played ball knows the nuclear Lucius. Million dollar arm and the five cent brain guy. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's how it's put in the movie. Now, the chemistry between these three main characters is a great job. It, it's interesting to note that I believe I read you had to fight to get Tim Robbins in the movie. They wanted uh, Anthony Michael Hall. They did. And, oh, uh, I can't imagine. Fight. Well, it's the book will tell you some horror stories about that, but. Tim, Tim, I liked from the beginning, and uh, but he was different, and he was kind of an unknown, and he'd been in one major movie, which was a flop called Howard the Duck, and I did nobody told me, didn't matter to me, but uh, I had to fight very hard for Tim all the way through the movie. As a matter of fact, uh, I thought he was perfect, and it was a really touching performance because he doesn't play him dumb; he gets smarter and smarter as the movie goes on. At the end of the movie, he's he's, he's teasing Crash. And he's much more sophisticated, and he's got dignity. I mean, Tim Robbins' nuke is a guy we like, and it would have been easy to make fun of him, but we don't. No. Yeah, and he makes it to the show, and uh, like you say, he kids around. He gets it. He gets it at the end, and and, and that's uh, a work of art by Crash Davis. Now, yeah. candlesticks, Ron. <laughs> Where'd you get it? <laughs> well, you've had Robert Wool on your right. times, and... He's responsible for that. Um, I shot his. We shot all night, and I shot his close up at like four in the morning. And Robert's a very high energy guy, as you know. And yeah. I thought, well, four in the morning, he'll be down to the size of the rest of us. He'll be tired. And so he had all night. And he said, "Can I come up with another line that was in the script?" And I said, "Yeah." And he was playing with this idea that his wife had. He had asked his wife what to get somebody for a wedding present lately, and she said, "Well." Candlesticks always make a nice gift. You can find out where she's registered, a tableware of batter or something. And so we did what was in the script. And then I said, okay, Robert, this one's for you. And he did it in one take, dry, dead dry reading. And I knew it. I knew right at that moment it was going to be in the movie. And he said he didn't <laughs> know it was going to be in the movie, but I never had a question about it. And yeah. I didn't even try. Whatever I was in the script, I didn't even put in the edit. I just went right for Robert's line. Right. No, he nailed that, too. That That's a classic. That's probably, of course, my favorite line in the movie. And then he follows that up with, uh, let's get two, 
which is let's get two. What yeah. else would you say, right? <laughs> yeah, so, well, let's get two as well as in the script that he added. But Robert also, you know, that I had to fight to keep that scene in the movie. The studio wanted to cut it out, and it was the, always the audience's favorite scene. So that I had, you know, once once the audience filled out their cards and said that's our favorite scene, it stayed. I would I would have fought to the death to keep that scene in. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Now, did you? enjoy making the film but is it was it a fun film to make oh you've read the book it was a nightmare <laughs> it, was a, it was a bloody war everything i i went after people i was fighting and arguing and with just about everybody except the cast i got along with the cast great oh the, i always get along with cast and crews but the, the the you know the suits the studio the people writing the checks the you know all that stuff was uh was a well the subtitle of the book is, uh, hold on, The Making of Bull Doom, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. And, a and hit. that's really not even giving it its full due. Uh, <laughs> it was a bloodbath. It was a bloodbath. <laughs> the book, again, by Ron Shelton is The Church of Baseball, and as he just said, The Making of Bull Durham. Now, have you ever considered going back trying to do a sequel maybe with with crash davis uh as a manager or do you think uh too much time has elapsed ron too much time has elapsed now yeah. i mean everybody's much older the the i did have an outline for a sequel uh many many years ago but um it didn't it didn't come together in people's schedules i never wrote it but i had an outline where was crash where was annie where was nuke and crash was had been in the minor leagues managing for many years and and now you know Durham has made a comeback the city of Durham as we know financially it's a happening place now and and they're a triple a team with a fancy ballpark and so in my version he'd worked his way back to Durham and instead of being the road to oblivion now it was the road to the majors and Annie and him hadn't worked out because you know she's not going to live in Visalia in a you know motel and uh She's teaching in Paris, and Nuke is trying to learn the knuckleball in Venezuela. And anyway, there's a whole thing where they all end up back in Durham. But it'll never happen. But if it did, that's what it was going to be. And and it sounds great, though. It, it sounds intriguing. <laughs> so uh, keep it on the back. Well, Kevin's, <laughs> Kevin's in his 60s, and Tim's in his yeah. 50s. And, you know, I mean, it, yeah, it's a good story, but it, it it's too late. Now, how about dealing with all the extras in the stands? I mean, throughout uh, Time in Memoriam, we see uh, extras uh, in movies, and you, you wonder how the directors deal with it. Uh, Robert Klein at one point, uh, Ron, talked about the coffee break on Ben-Hur. Uh, how many with cream, cream, cream? Don't sell your yeah. costumes, costumes. <laughs> and uh, how about dealing with all the extras? Well, we didn't have many because we couldn't afford many. Okay. Luckily, it was a minor league down, which there are not that many at the games in those days. Now, minor leagues really rocking. Uh, but um, we struggled, you know, a couple hundred here, a couple hundred there. They're expensive. Uh, you got to feed them. <laughs> you know, it's freezing cold. There's heaters in the stands, and you got to hide the heaters for the shot. But th- there was one great story where we, um, my producer, I was shooting a night scene. I aimed the cameras away from the stands because the stands were empty. And he promised by 10 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night to get the stands full. 
when I turned the cameras around and shot the scene in the other direction, and he, I didn't know what happened. I found out years later he had gone to uh, the uh, Pink Floyd concert in, in Chapel Hill, and uh, <laughs> and he knew one of the guys on the Pink Floyd team. And anyway, he got the Pink Floyd guys to make an announcement. There'd be an after party at the Durham Athletic Park, and there'd be free beer and a concert. Well, everybody in the stands showed up at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, and they had Pink Floyd shirts on, and, and we had kegs of beer, but the band never showed up, of course, but I got my crowd. So that was what I call really good producing by a man named Mark Berg. I, I think as long as you had the beer, it was a win. Ron. They, they maybe yeah. never noticed the band didn't show yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, they showed up for the beer, that's for sure. Now, what, what screenwriters and directors such as you uh, inspired you early on in your career to take that path? Well, the, at the way back at the beginning was people like, I love the Westerns, Sam Peckinpah was, was, made the movies with the Wild Bunch that made me want to make movies, but... You know, also I'm a big Laurel and Hardy fan, so yeah. uh, I, I love those two guys, and I love Buster Keaton's silent movies. But um, you know, I, I, I had wide-ranging tastes. I, I love The Hustler as one of my favorite movies. I guess it's a sports movie, uh, but right. you know, um, I like Doctor No. I like you know, I, I I I liked a lot of kinds of different kinds of movies. But I'd say that. The westerns of Sam Peckinpah were the one was the guy that made me want to figure out how to do this. Anything coming uh, our way in the future, Ron? From you? Well, yes, but I can't name it because we're waiting for a couple things to be signed and official. But I've got a couple of television things. I've got another movie, um, hopefully with Costner, uh, with a baseball writing the one of the great. Uh, pieces of sports writing of all time but Richard Ben Kramer's short book what do you think of Ted Williams now when he went down to the Keys to interview Ted Williams in his 60s it's a great book and I'm writing that as a script we're also about to develop Rose versus Giamatti as a movie we've got part of that cast uh, the script's not written so I'm still I'm still in the baseball world that sounds great those sound intriguing especially the Ted Williams movie I would love to see that now, well, Rose Giamatti's interesting too. Yeah, oh yeah, the president definitely. of Yale. You've got the most reflective guy ever meets the least reflective guy ever, and one of them brings the other down, really. And uh, and, and I, anyway, I, I I'm, I'm I'm really excited about that one as well. I will see that man in two weeks. He will be have his uh, rightful place on Main Street in Cooperstown, signing autographs from Wednesday yeah. to Sunday. Uh, <laughs> Like he is every year up there. Yes. If if you were in the major leagues, Ron, what would be your walk-up music? There's a question I've never heard. Um, well, it wouldn't be, please release me, let me go. <laughs> uh, you know, I have to think about that, and the next time I do your show, I'll have an answer. Good deal. That's a deal, Ron. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you with us tonight. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us up here in New York. The book again, folks. It's a tremendous read. The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. That's Ron Shelton, ladies and gentlemen. And I am in New York doing a book signing at Barnes & Noble on the 27th. Of July. Okay, that's, that's great. We'll, we'll note that again later on in the show. Thank you so much, Ron. All right. Thanks. Talk to you.
Have a good night. That's Ron Shelton, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will speak with one of the newest Hall of Famers, Tony Oliva. Stick around, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, folks, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. Hope everyone's having a wonderful weekend. Tough loss for the Mets today, and now they go into Atlanta with only a game-and-a-half lead in the National League East. So it's going to be a tough one, folks. Max Scherzer against Max Fried tomorrow night. The Max Effort game. So we will play pay close attention to that one. Uh, well, my next guest, he played his entire 15-year Major League career for the Minnesota Twins. He was the Rookie of the Year in 1964, an eight-time All-Star, two-time World Champion, a three-time Batting Champion, and to top it off on July 24th, Two weeks from today, he will take his rightful place as a baseball immortal being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. It's great to welcome back to the show, Tony Oliva. Tony, good evening. Hi, there. How you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Outstanding. Today, I hear the New York Met lost, but oh. we win today a big game that we need, we need to win in Texas. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, bu- it builds character being a Met fan, Tony. It's not easy, but what are you going to do, you know? <laughs> no, no, no. It's a hunger there. You know, they have a great team. And, every, you know, they started very well. And they still do real good. And everybody goes through that through the years. But I think they will be there in the end of the season. I hope so, Tony. Now, w- when you were in Cuba, your dad wanted you, and he encouraged you, to come to America and be a ball player. Well, you see, I, my dream, I tell you, my dream uh, was to maybe get lucky and be able to play in Havana, you know, from one of those uh, great uh, uh, ball club that was uh, in the uh, winter baseball league, uh, you know, Mendares, Sinfolo, Marianaos, and Havana. And I said, yeah, I like to play for the, for this um, Fuego Ball Club mm-hmm. because of Pete Ramos is, is from Pinar del Rio and he played for the same Fuego Ball Club and Camilo Pascual and I, I like Minoso, he played for, uh, for Maria now. But they have a great ball club, uh, winter baseball in Cuba and I listened in the, in the radio. So I never, uh, went to Havana to watch a ball game or anything. Now, in 63, Tony, you're invited to spring training with the Twins, and they want you to become the lefty counterbalance to Bobby Allison and Harmon Killebrew. Talk a little bit about those two guys. Well, you know, I, I was lucky to come to Minnesota. I have so many great, uh, nice ball players there 
in the ball club. Uh, I want, and the, the third of the ball club was a Spanish too, you know, Camilo Pascual, the Solo Isai, the Camilo, right. the Julio Becker, and, uh, and, uh, you know, the only for mention a few, and, uh, you know, but they got it, we got it, Hamon Killebrew there, you know, he's so nice, he's, he's so good, so, a lot of power. And, uh, Bobby Allison, he got another big guy, he got a lot of power right on the hill. And I have some good years in the manual Yeah, I went to Puerto Rico, I win the champion bar in Puerto Rico too. And they needed somebody in the line north to hit, uh, in front, uh, in front of Allison and Cleveland to get them base. And they gave me the opportunity to, uh, to, you know, to, to be that guy. Uh, they take a chance because, you know, for do that, they had to move Bobby Allison from right field to first and base and give me a chance to play in right field. And, uh, that's all the way to take it. They give me a chance. Yeah, I hit it and never stop. No. Yeah, <laughs> you, you kept on. <laughs> now, you, you also played, you, you mentioned his name, uh, a fellow Cuban, Zoilo Versailles. Oh yes, the great ball player, you know. You know, I like to tell you, I was a blessing because, uh, when I come to Minnesota, I don't speak any English, nothing. But I have all those guys here, you know. Mm-hmm. Good people, great people, and great ball players, you know. Versailles is becoming the MVP in the league in 1965. Camilo Pascual, he got the best curve in baseball. And, you know, and, uh, you know, Julio Becker, he, was on the, on the club too, you know, go, 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 and, 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 you know, Pete Ramo, he, he won the first game from Minnesota twin, team when they moved from Washington to Minnesota. I think uh, we got a lot of, uh, a lot of the great Cuban ball play in the, in the ball club. And, and they, uh, they were my babysitting because uh, I don't speak in English. Yeah. Uh, I don't have no family and nothing here in the United States. Uh, that was like me. Only here in Minnesota. I think I was lucky to, to be with Minnesota Ball Club. And, uh, you know, uh, I say my, 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 uh, my career and everything, I think it was a lucky, a lucky shot that God wanted me to do that. And, uh, um, I survived it because I got released in spring training after four or five days in spring training. And, and later, um when I was waiting in Charlotte to come back to Cuba, there was a Cuban fellow there who speak on the general manager of Charlotte and they decided to, to call Calvin Griffin and they resigned me again and, and that was the well take they resigned me again, I went to the rookie league and after that I became a super duper prospect, you know, <laughs> because I hit over four hundred. Right. You know. Now Tony, you were the first player ever to win both the Rookie of the Year and win the batting title. Yeah, yeah, I was the first one, you know. And, and yeah, he, I, you see, I don't know what I was doing. I know I, I know was putting on attention uh, because you know I like I come from Cuba. Uh, I, I grew up in the country. I don't listen to much baseball or watch any professional baseball or anything. I only play in Cuba. Uh, in town ball and Sunday. And uh, if I have a chance, I practice it with, uh, with my brothers and, and friends. But then the, in, in, in the, 
and my farm. You see, we used to have a farm, and my father built it, a field on the farm. This is where we can play there, and Sunday we got a game. Now, Tony, in 65, you won the batting title again. Again, another first, back-to-back batting titles. No one ever did that before in the American League either. No, no. no. I, I was lucky because if you figure all those great ball players who was there in the cities, you know, from all those big clubs, yeah, you win the champion battle back-to-back. From all those uh, great pitches they have in the American League. And in those days, too, you know, uh, there was a little big, I said, you know, I said, nasty. When the people, you know, used to throw to you, you know, and brought you, everyone said they brought you back. It's another thing when they throw to you and peppers. You know what I mean? Right. And those days they used to do that, you know. But it was a party game. You know, you see, I was lucky because every time I get hit, I get better. <laughs> you, know? you did. One, one of those things, you know. Now, I want to talk to you, Tony, about June the 9th, 1966. Now, it's the seventh inning of a game against the Kansas City A's, and you, Harmon, Don Mincher, Rich Rollins, and Zoilo hit five home runs in a single inning. That, that's amazing. <laughs> I can't believe it, you know. Yeah. That was a, that was a lot of fun, you know, because the first, the, the first guy hitting a run, the second guy hitting a run, the manager went and speak on the pitch, but before he had a chance to any anything because they were winning, I hit a home run, Kiliburu hit a home run, you know, that was unbelievable. <laughs> and and uh, do you remember, Tony, who who, uh, who gave up three of those home runs? You know, I should... Oh, catfish! I don't remember if it was eh? I, I don't catfish hunter. Catfish, uh, yeah. yeah. Catfish yeah. gave up three, and Paul Lindblad gave up two. Yeah. Oh man, catfish. Uh, well, you know, catfish. You know, he he his career he he gave a lot of home runs, but he gave a lot of single home runs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is this is in the Hall of Fame too. Yeah, you, you had some trouble with your knees, Tony. Uh, we heard from Rod Carew that you used to get up and, and uh, ice, ice your knees. What, what caused your knees to, to uh, go bad? Well, I think, you know, my knee was a, uh, a little bit crook from the beginning, you know. Yeah. But uh, I think it was happy, you know. And I was playing, and I started before, like in 66. In the springtime, I hit the fence, you know, and, oh, and, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and that was in Orlando, Florida, you know, in Tinkerfield. I hit the fence a little bit, he had chipping a little bit, my knee. Uh, she, I got a chip bone in my knee first. And 66, after the season, I went to Rochette and they cleaned it up, you know, taking the, uh, they take the chip out. But I was 100%, I was fine and, it was better than ever. But in 1971, uh, I do for a ball in Oakland. Rudy, Rudy, uh, hit a, a Texas Lee ball. Yeah, I think this is the only chance I got to catch it. Yeah, he, uh, he for a ball, but they have a, a head, a water head right there in the field. And I slipped, I hit my knee right there in the water head. Yeah, I 
you know, this is why I taught the college. Mm-hmm. And my knee, and my knee never, never, never went the same. Never. After that, and I was able to play no more on the outfield. I missed that part because, uh, man, I work so, uh, I, I don't say I work so hard because I enjoy it in baseball, everything I did. But I developed myself to become a pretty good outfield. When I think the first couple of years I played the manually, I think that was the worst outfit you can see because <laughs> I don't play baseball in Cuba that much. Right, know? yeah. And, and I never played night game. Uh, man, the people used to hit the ball to me and say, I got it, got it, got it. See, the ball was 20 feet behind my head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and sometimes, you know, I sit on the ground, almost sit on the ground, and I see the ball go through my leg, you know. I don't know what happened. No. But, uh, and so that was a city one and city two, but I went to Australian League, and some of those coaches, they gave me hundreds of five balls on baseball. Yeah, I want to be good. Uh, I have a chance to see some of these big league ball players play. Yeah, so I collide for Detroit play in American League. Yeah, I said, man, I'd like to play like him someday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was great, because second year, you know, but three years later, I won the Golden Globe. So yeah, that was that was pretty good. Yes, that's for sure. It was yeah, I enjoy it. I was enjoying your play the outfield. I like to throw people out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're speaking with the great Hall of Famer Tony Oliva tonight. Now, one thing that came along in '73, we we spoke to Ron Bloomberg about this. Also, the designated hitter that really gave you new life, as you say, Tony. You didn't have oh, yeah, to that's... use your knees, but uh, the DH was really made for you. Oh yes, yes. Uh, I think the DH is great for people uh, like one uh, like me. Um, those days because I played, but I know I was able to play in the outfield anymore. Uh, that wasn't my, my other chance to play. Uh, I think at the age, it had to be, uh, very tough for a young player who, who want to play in the outfield or in the infield because the other thing you do is hit. If you don't hit, um, you don't think you have the ball club and anything. And uh, for me, um, I like when I play in the outfield, I maybe not hit the ball, but I may go play, I have the ball club to win the game in, in, in the, the different way. That was a big thing. I think every time I see a young man, I like uh, David Ortiz, what he did in Boston, you know, that he was uh, at the edge, but 99% of the time, mm-hmm. he did a beautiful thing. In Boston and here in Minnesota, too. Uh, you know, it's hard for a young, a young player. And, of course, Tony will go into Cooperstown with the great David Ortiz in two weeks. Now, Tony was the first designated hitter to hit a home run. I don't know if people know that or not. It was April 6, 1973. Tony Oliva, the first home run by a designated hitter, which is another great fact that you folks may not be aware of. Right, Tony? You're right. I mm-hmm. was lucky because I faced that day, I faced a catfish hunter. And he know most of the time I don't like to, to swing the first pitch, you know, that, uh, <laughs> in the ball game. Yeah. I don't swing the first pitch most of the time. After that, I swing. He had not taken too many pitches, anything close I was able to swing and hit it. 
Uh, but that day in, in, in Oakland, I remember the first speech I saw, he told me a nice speech right there. Yeah, he hit that ball, you know, I hit the ball out of the ballpark. Mm-hmm. And uh, I surprised him because he maybe think when I go, go get ahead of Tony, you know, because I don't, I don't play that year too much in spring training because I was, you know, my Nino was 100%. Yeah, I was, in my mind, I think in Minnesota, uh, probably goes at least me in spring training. Uh, because, you know, in those days, it's, it's easy to release the guy, you say, go, you know, bye bye, baby. Yeah. But, uh, Kevin Griffin have another idea for me. Uh, he was very nice. He, uh, he gave me the opportunity to be, the, to be from the ball club all the, the rest of my career. And later, when I finished, he called me to the office. One day, he offered me a job if I want. He said, he, he, I never forget it. He told me, look, I know you, you right now, you don't can play no more. And I feel, but if you want, uh, you can be my healing coach. And I tell him, my answer is say, you know, I, I, I think I still can hit. I, 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 I like to be, if it's possible with the manager, I, I want to be a coaching, playing coach. Okay. And this way I can be here or something for you if they need it. Uh, if it's okay. Um, Jim Mark agree. Yeah, you know, I was, you know, uh, playing coach in 1976. Uh, yeah, it, later I think, you know, I said, you know, it was good, but I wish, you know, I don't did that one because it was very hard to do it. There's Tony talking about Gene Mock, the manager of the Minnesota Twins at that time. Another fact about Tony Oliva, folks, that you may not be aware of, he holds the distinction of being the only on-field team member to appear with all three Minnesota Twins World Series teams. He was the outfield, he was an outfielder in 1965 for the champion Twins a hitting coach in 1987, and the bench coach in 1991. So Tony was in uniform for all three Minnesota Twins World titles, and that that's a great a great thing to uh, be able to say, Tony. Thank you, thank you. You know, I, I was a bench coach and hitting and coach for a lot of the players because a lot of those players, the, 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 there was with me while working in manual league too in the in the eighties and later come out eighty five to the big league to ninety one. Uh see so I keep it working with them uh with them because I was uh, uh, uh simple, you know, I, I make a, I make everything simple the hitting, you know, I know uh because I tell you guys, see the ball, hit the ball. But but, but I make the guy work. I I got some idea how to practice. Uh you know, uh, I, I, I tell them what to take it to be a successful hitty. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people do it, some people don't do it, but, um, to be a successful hitty, you have to be like, a, like the same way you go to school. You go to school to learn to everything. And, and to be a successful hitty, you have to learn how to hit the breaking ball, not only fastball. Right. We're speaking with the great Tony Oliva tonight. We spoke a little bit about Catfish Hunter. Tony, now he named you as the toughest batter he had he had to face because you could hit a pitch anywhere. He, you didn't have any weaknesses. And Dean Chance said that 
you and Carl Yastrzemski were the two toughest hitters that he, they had to face. And Louis Tion, he wrote that you were the toughest hitter he had to face in his career. Who was the toughest pitcher for you to face, Tony? Well, I don't, see, I don't say the tough pitcher, but the pitcher I don't like to face is I like a pitcher, pitcher like Sam Madauer. Yeah, Sam Sutton Sam. Because he throw hard, and he was wow. You know, he throw one ball in the middle of the play, and the next ball can be uh, behind your neck. Uh, <laughs> but it's very hard to concentrate and get a, you know, a, a, a pitcher who's wow like that. Uh, like another Ryan. Another Ryan is another guy that was, he, when he got a super duper stuff too, you know. Both right. guys throw very hard, but he throw very well, they were very wild. Um, I, I, I tell, I, I talk sometimes, I say, you know, I know Nora Ryan won 300 and first games and lost 290 or something. But if he got a good control that he only walked Three guys, you know, normal like three, mm-hmm. three guys for a game or something. He may he may win five on the game because <laughs> hey, right. that guy in the seven eighteen he was throw harder. You know, you know. I wish, I wish they have the going they got it today in those days or right now because the problem right now is a lot of those people think, oh, when we play, uh, those. Uh, pitches only used to throw 88, 89, 90, 91 miles per hour. This is what they think. Because they don't have to face it, some my tower, they don't have to face it, no, that's right, they don't have to face it, that, that Cleveland stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, I bet you all those pitches was way up there. And since in the National League, there was a lot of pitches to control very hard and the, the ball get to home play very, very quickly. And, those pitches after the six, seven innings, they still the same or better, you know. Right. And uh, this, this is this is why this is what uh, I, I think. Uh, now the only thing that thing probably make a little bit difficult to hit today because you have to face so many different pitches. You know, a guy pitches four or five innings, and later they bring this this guy for one inning, or the guy for another inning, or the guy for another inning. I think that's a little bit different. Right. It's a much different game, Tony. Now, I want to ask you, how does it feel to go into the Hall of Fame in two weeks and join your great roommate, the tremendous ball player Rod Carew? What does it mean to you to go into the Hall of Fame and join Rod Carew? Well, I think it's, I think, uh, it's great to be with Rod Carew. Um, I remember him when he first came to the league. You know, I was in the baby city. <laughs> I tell him hey, I was yeah. in the baby city. Yeah, yeah, I was in a big league there for four years, and he became a very young, you know, very green. And we roomed, we roomed eleven years, and we helped one another a lot. And um, uh, I think it's great to be in same, in same group. And it's another uh, guys that it's very uh, nice to to go with. It's a Jean Cat. Jim Cott Jim and me, we played, right. yeah, we, we played in the National League together back in 1961 in St. of Florida. Already he was in the big league. But, uh, that day, that year, and so that year they sent him to the National League to launch another pitch. Him and Pete Ramos and Monocos and Lee Stein, all those guys was in the big league. 
but those those in those days, this is what they used to be in the social league. Sometimes they signed a big big prospect and some guy from the big league who needed some extra work. Well, two weeks from this moment, right now, you're going to be a Hall of Famer, Tony. Uh, it's going to be a great day, July 24th in Cooperstown. Your Hall of Fame speech, have you finished it? <laughs> People ask me about that, that question for a minute. I started 45 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, see, I, see, I don't know how that's in my mind. Uh, I hope you, I hope you know everything coming alright. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to go over there and read a letter, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, I wish, I wish I can say what comes to my mind. A lot of people helped me. Uh, I, have to, I, have to, I think my speech, I think, will be simple. Uh, I hope I don't forget it. I but well, I'm not going to mention everybody, but I think the most I like, uh, like to thank your speech because all those people help me a lot, you know, and I don't want to talk about myself. I don't have enough to say about myself. <laughs> I like, I like, the only thing I can say, I was the, the worst outfit in the world and I become the best one when you, when you win the Golden Glove, it means that you're the best in the position. See, if they come from the best to, from the worst to the best, it's good. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we're going to look forward. We we're going to look forward to listening to you. My wife and I will be there, Tony, uh, in Cooperstown on the twenty fourth, and uh, I look forward to uh, you taking your rightful place in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And and you spent your entire career with the Minnesota Twins. I know a lot of the Twins organization is going to be in Cooperstown as well. And as you say, you're going in with Big Poppy, who is a tw- an ex-twin, and also with the great Jim Cott. Jim Cott, yes. Jim Cott, you know, and, you know, that Kevin Packers over there, he was the one in my, uh, the, you know, when, I, when he first started, I was coaching the manual league. Mm-hmm. And later be coming to the big league. He used to call me Papa, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and what, you know, Killebrew, you know, Killebrew for all his career, who was there in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, he called me rookie, a rookie, rookie. Uh, he still called me rookie uh, to the end. So, you know, I have some other cool memories. A lot of great memories, a lot of great ball players, and a great one yourself. Tony Oliva, thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here in New York. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks up in Cooperstown. I'd like you to thank Anita for setting us up again, and uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Send to you, okay? Send to you and your family. That is Tony Oliva, ladies and gentlemen. And we will, as I said, we will see him in Cooperstown in two weeks at the induction ceremony uh, to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Ron Shelton and the great Tony Oliva, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. I'll see you next week, July 17th. Don't miss it. We will speak to former Major League Baseball umpire, Dale Scott, and we will visit with Gil Hodges Jr. We'll find out how that speech is coming to uh, Gil Hodges going in the Hall of Fame as well. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.